0: Our New Testament lesson today will come from Ephesians 5. We'll be reading from verse 18 to verse 33, and that will be our our text for this week and for uh, the next two weeks. Brothers and sisters, before I read this text, remember, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. The unity is central to the new creation reality that is ours as members of the one body of Jesus Christ. When Paul said at the beginning of chapter 4 here, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit. This unity doesn't erase the natural diversity of the many members of the body. Indeed, as we'll see today, it it depends upon diversity for its strength. Paul closes this exhortation of chapters 4 and 5 and 6 by looking at particular roles by which Christians submit to one another and support and create this unity through the power of the Spirit. And those roles include wives and husbands in their callings in marriage. They include children and parents. They include bondservants. Uh, slaves and their masters. And each of these diverse callings is an opportunity for us to be filled by the Spirit and to express the mutual submission to one another out of our reverence for Christ our head. And so uh, for the next three weeks we're going to be looking at marriage but we're going to start at the end. We're going to start by looking at Christ because he's the model for us. Christ and the church. So the, the outline here as I read is going to be the foundation of marriage in creation. The mystery the creation marriage is modeled on Christ and the church. And finally, Christ's relation to his body as our model for marriage. So this is God's holy word picking up in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything to their husbands. And thus far, the reading of God's holy word, join me in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. talk about Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That is explicitly what Paul is saying here. Before we turn to this important section, it's important for us to recognize where we're starting from, where we are beginning. Marriage is in crisis in our society, in the West in particular, and the marriage crisis is having a profound impact on faith in America. I recently attended a a presentation of a a study, a very thorough in-depth study that was done that talked about how the, the breakdown of the family, and particularly resident fathers in the household, children being raised by uh, separated parents, has played a direct contributing role to the rise of those who respond on surveys now that they have no faith affiliation whatsoever. The rise of the so-called nuns. 30 years ago, uh, these nuns who report no faith affiliation were about 6% of America. One in 20. Now they're 21%. Uh, almost one or over one in five. As I was putting the finishing touches on my sermon yesterday and also taking a break and looking at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I saw not one or, but two articles that talked about this decline of marriage. The marriage rate in the U.S. is roughly six per 1,000 people. That means for every 1,000 people living in any given year, in that year there will be six marriages. Uh, This has declined 60% in the last 50 years. Globally in the West, it's about 4 per 1,000 people. And to make matters worse, these statistics include marriages that we wouldn't recognize as biblical marriages. These statistics are now incorporating marriages of same-sex couples, which is uh, tweaking the decline of male and female marriage. That was one article. Another article had a big uh, uh, trumpeting uh, the, the advance that in the next few years we might be able to develop a human egg for the purpose of reproduction from a skin cell. So a man could generate an egg from his own skin cells that could lead to life. And one of the leading research scientists said that this will allow same-sex male couples to have their own children. God's plan for marriage is under attack from technology and economics and all sorts of other ways. These statistics uh, could be multiplied, but the impact on children is profound. 89% of births in America, almost 90% in 1970, when I was born, I know that seems like forever ago, right, were to married couples. But today that number is 60%. And in the general U.S. population, half of us were raised in homes that for some time did not have an intact father and mother present half of us in the general population now in this room based on this study that looked at catholic and protestant hundreds and hundreds of churches in 12 states in a church on sunday 85 to 87% of you were raised in homes with intact parents what does that tell you when children are raised in homes with intact parents they're far more likely to grow up and to be members and worshipers in church. This study went on to show that there was a chronological breakdown in marriage before there was a rise in the nuns. In other words, we have broken the machine by which faith is transferred from one generation to the next in our society. And this has impacted all of us. I I know that it's heartbreaking, brothers and sisters. There is no such thing as a functional family. All our families are dysfunctional. And you might have had both your parents in your home, and it could have still been pretty messed up. I know. Mom's probably watching on the live stream, and she's probably agreeing, all right? So she knows too. No offense to mom or dad. This has impacted all of us because our world hates marriage. That same Wall Street Journal said that 40% of Americans thinks that the institution of marriage has outlived its usefulness. 40% of our neighbors, the people making popular culture, advertisements, everything, they want us to hate marriage. And we're bombarded with that message daily. We had a visitor in our home after worship a few weeks ago, and he urged us in his wisdom, the wisdom that comes only with age, to preach and teach more about marriage. I said, well, there's a text coming up in a few weeks. You know, I'll do what I can. I'm a minister of the word. I'm not a sociologist. I can't explain all of these sociological societal issues that are going on here, right? But the word of God does testify to the importance of marriage for our human condition, for our humanity, our anthropology, what and who we are. And as the world bombards us implicitly and explicitly with false messages about marriage, gender, human sexuality, it is crucial that we look to God's word for the truth about our humanity. It is crucial that we use God's word and recognize that it praises marriage as a good. It's crucial that single people seek and pray that the Lord would bless them with marriage as he wills. And we'll talk a little bit about singleness. But also that our married couples invest in strengthening and preserving their marriages. Because it's a hard battle, brothers and sisters. Paul says this mystery is profound. And the foundation here is laid in creation. And so that's where Paul turns, and that's where we are going to turn. This discussion of marriage has a prominent and climactic role in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's not secondary or ancillary to the gospel. It's not like he says, let's talk about the gospel. Okay, now I'm going to give you some moral instruction about how to live with your wife. It is the gospel. And I want us to take time to hear and learn from the Spirit as he seeks to instruct us and guide us to greater faithfulness. This is a marriage and a message crucial for all of us. And and I would commend Tim Keller's excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I don't agree with every word in it, but it is basically a series of sermons on this passage of Ephesians. And Keller reminds us that the reality that marriage points us toward is Christ and the church. And even for single members in our congregation, that's a reality of your gospel faith. You are a part of a marriage to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are the bride of Christ. And so understanding what is going on biblically in creation and redemption about marriage is essential for all of us understanding the gospel. That's why we need to spend time in God's word here. Well, turning now to my first point, that the foundation of marriage is found in creation and um, if you think I, I run a little long in this first point, know that this first point is about 70% of the sermon. Because it's a very important point that we need to be reminded of. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24, directly in our text today, in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This text is the core biblical teaching on marriage. It's taught by Moses, it's taught by Jesus, and it's taught by Paul in two different places. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. And these two individuals become one. Now in one sense they remain two and in one sense they're one. This is a mystery. Unity from diversity. Unity that preserves diversity. And in our culture today we have tremendous confusion regarding humanity itself. What constitutes male and female. We have a concerted effort to deny the created bodily reality of male and female. The world tells us all is one, all is will. We can identify however we wish, male, female, both, neither. Children, you need to know uh, that it wasn't always so. Your parents might warn you about this in the world today, but we weren't raised with warnings 20 or 30 years ago. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, begins by noting that that the world today would have not only been strange or bizarre to his father's world, it would have been literally incomprehensible. People speaking as we speak today on the nightly news, yeah, there's such a thing, or, or on the internet, or however, would have been viewed as virtually insane or speaking a different language. Genesis teaches us that humanity is made in God's image, not in the abstract, not in general, but as male and female, concretely. Back in chapter 1, we did not read it this morning. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping living thing. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Them. There's still a them. God blessed them and said to them, He gives them every plant. He gives them dominion over every beast. This is the sixth day, and it's the climax of God's work of creation. Man is created male and female. He's created, later we'll learn, to be fruitful and multiply. He's created in the image of his creator to be a miniature creator, modeling his creation after him to bring forth life. God, furthermore, endows the image bearer with a unique status. He's not just like every other animal, every other beast. He's not like every other plant. All life is not the same. Man is given dominion. He's given the use of. To be cared for, yes, to be stewarded. But there is a distinction between man and all else. And that relates to the distinction between God and creation itself. Man is thus already called in Genesis 1 to the work of fruitfulness. To the work of multiplication. And he enters his seventh day Sabbath rest. Sabbath, brothers and sisters, rest, the ending of work, is a part of the image of God. We were created to work and then to enter into God's eternal Sabbath rest. Now, we picked up reading in Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 1 and is like a prologue, uh, the, Je- the creation days in chapter 1, to what takes place in chapter 2. And the formula that opens chapter 2 is repeated 10 times through the book of Genesis. It's like a chapter heading. So if you were reading this in a, in a published book, you would read Genesis, and then you'd turn the page, and there'd be a blank cha- page, and then chapter 2 uh, would begin in verse 5. Moses starts the story proper after the prologue by recapitulating part of what's already happened. It's not chronologically subsequent, because there isn't male and female at the beginning of this chapter. There's only male, and there isn't even male. There isn't man. So the problem of chapter 2, verse 5, there is no vegetation, no cultivated vegetation, no wild vegetation, is related to two problems. It hasn't yet rained, and there's no man to vegetate to cultivate the fields, to dig a ditch. And God solves the problem. He sends rain, and he creates man. He puts him in a garden to cultivate. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, in chapter 1, we were told that man was made male and female in God's image. That was fine. It's true. In chapter 2, we learned that that took a little time. We are given additional detail. The male human is made first. Calvin, in his sermon on Ephesians 5, notes that God didn't have to create us in this way. He made a choice, and it's significant. It's by design. Man and women are made by a different process. Male and female are created differently. And we know that this is a significant detail because Paul refers to it in his letter to Timothy. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a significant detail. Now we don't have time to dwell on the different issues of 1 Timothy 2. But simply to note that here in Ephesians and in Timothy, Paul is grounding his view of marriage, his view of women and men, not in his opinions, not in his culture, but in the fact of creation and in God's holy word. Paul is teaching theology. This isn't Paul's opinion that we can dismiss of as being old-fashioned. One of the keys of our Old Testament text is that Adam is put alone into the garden. And Adam is given this command alone. Eve's not there yet when God says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. So he gives him this Command to work and to guard the garden to keep it alone without Eve. And it is Adam who received this commandment of life. This is why in the scriptures and in our churches, we call Adam the, the covenant head of humanity. He's our federal representative. He is standing in a unique place. No man ever stood where Adam stood, sinless, before God, having received the command, do this and you will live, do this and you will die And this is why Paul, in Romans 5, chapter 12, says, Sin came into the world through one man, man, Adam, and death through sin. It's immediately after being given this command that God reveals that the male, man, human, needs a helper. He's given a command and he can't fulfill it on his own. Up to this point, God has given the benediction of his works of creation. Every day was declared to be good. But now we learn that before there was male and female, the work of creation was not yet good. The work of human creation was not yet good. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Do you see how much of the teaching in Genesis, in the first two chapters of the Bible, is about how men and women get, relate to each other? Isn't it profound? Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird, and they brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That shows the dominion. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He didn't need another creature. So, so, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This at last, the man says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created Eve. Because man alone could not fulfill the creational purpose of the human race. He needed help. Paul will later say, Well, yeah, the first woman came from a man, but now all men come from women. (laughs) It's kind of the way we're necessarily tied to each other, brothers and sisters. This brings us to verse 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 23 of Genesis, which is right before Paul's quote. Right before the marriage command. The next verse, 24, is where Moses reveals the plan and the purpose of marriage. A statement that will be picked up, as I said, by Christ and by the apostle. And the key point in this logical chain is that the woman, female, is created differently than the male. By a different process, distinction, and commonality. He was made of the dust of the earth. She was taken out of the man. And she is, therefore, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Their special unity that men and women have in marriage, the two becoming one, is based on God's wisdom of creation. She's made with this deep sharing, deep unity. And Adam recognizes her as a fit helper because of the unity and commonality they share. This unity is what the Lord declares to be very good on day six going back in the text, going back in the story, but that's where we are in the unfolding of the history. This is very good. Two, male and female, alike imaging God, alike being creative, fruitful, multiplying. This unity is what makes the female, who will later be called Eve, the mother of the living. It's what makes her a fit helper. It is this creational reality, the nature of women and men, Made in God's image together, united together to fulfill his purposes for all humanity, for all of creation. This creational reality is behind the therefore of Genesis 2.24. That therefore is in Genesis. And Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5. It's the therefore of the marriage mandate. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The union of marriage is grounded in the unity and diversity of male and female. They were created differently so they might celebrate and have a special unity so that she would be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And the actual, historic, physical one-flesh relation of that first male and that first female in the garden is the reason why for us today the man is to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now obviously... Um, Speaking biologically, the unity and diversity of Adam and Eve is necessary for procreation, for multiplication. Sexual reproduction requires both sameness and difference, and that's a part of God's good plan here on earth. Not until there are two can God issue the command at the end of the seventh day, be fruitful and multiply. Now, remember, that's not the absolute purpose of man. And that's why Jesus can say, in glory, they will, never be given, they will never give nor be given in marriage. That's a temporary purpose until the number of the elect is complete. But more profoundly than this biological relationship, the text points us to a greater need for unity. The two are called to work together to guard and keep the garden. They are called to live out their actual unity. They're called to keep covenant with God together, to obey his commands. And they have a different relationship to that command because Adam heard it from God and Eve heard it from Adam. That's why Paul says Adam was formed first and Eve second. The first sin is marital disunity. The first sin is a divorce. Paul will say Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He's not saying that women are weaker and more easily deceived. She heard what she heard from him. How can both these things be true that Adam is the one who sinned and brought death to humanity and Eve was deceived? Because Adam is the federal head, the covenant head was given the command. We don't know how he commanded it, we don't have the dialogue, but she says, God said, so she heard it from Adam. And we know that when the serpent was there deceiving her, Adam was there like, I don't know, not doing his job. Guarding and protecting the garden and his marriage. So as I wrap up this um, first point about how marriage and Paul's teaching is grounded in creation, brothers and sisters, we um, need to acknowledge two things. We live in a broken and fallen world where we're all divorced. C.S. Lewis calls it the great divorce from our creator, right? And, And yet marriage persists as an instrument and an implement in God's tool shed for restoring this unity, and building the redemptive purpose of his church. It's through marriage and through fertility that Eve will bear a child. That child will ultimately be Christ. But also, we need to remember that marriage is badly broken and singleness has a new place in a fallen world. And it's in the church as the new creation that every one of us, whether or not we are called into physical, marital relation historically here on earth, are called into union with Christ as his bride. So in the church, we are all restored. We are all a part of that Fertility, That fruitfulness of God's new kingdom, new creation. So this is a message and the message about marriage that is crucial for everyone in the church, whether you be single or married. And again, I I believe that Tim Keller's book is a wonderful testimony to that. He he says, when I started this church in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I thought I wouldn't have to teach on marriage very much because 80% of my congregation was single. It's an urban city place. But he said, I started realizing people were asking me. And when I taught this series of sermons on Ephesians 5, everyone couldn't get enough because they knew that whether they were single or married, they needed to understand how this pointed to their ultimate relation with their creator. And that brings us directly to the second point. The mystery that creation, marriage, is modeled on Christ and the church. Now, this is like kind of a mind-bending thing here, brothers and sisters. And I've struggled with this for a really long time. I think I actually made... A little bit of personal progress in my brain this week, which was encouraging from Paul's teaching in Ephesians. And we'll get there in a moment. The foundation of the whole Bible story of creation and redemption is laid in the opening of Genesis. And we can't talk about what it looks like for believers to be faithful members of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, or faithful husbands and wives without understanding the foundation we just saw in Genesis. Genesis. And this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 5 when he quotes this account and he draws an important conclusion. This mystery is profound. I'm saying, he spells it out for us, it refers to Christ and the church. Now to understand how this is a great mystery, we have to first understand what a mystery is. Uh, the Latin translation for this word mysterion, the Greek word, um, in the Latin New Testament becomes sacramentum. Which is one of the reasons our Roman Catholic friends call marriage a sacrament. That isn't the meaning of the word here. That isn't the meaning of the word here. But a mystery could be like something that's revealed at the end of time, a secret. If you think of like an an Agatha Agatha Christie mystery, right? People are trying to figure out a detective story and it's revealed at the end. So what makes a, a mystery interesting is that there's something hidden that becomes revealed. And that's part of what's going on here. But there's another aspect of a mystery. There's an aspect of a mystery that is a truth that's beyond our comprehension. Mysteriousness. The Trinity is a mystery. Because we have finite brains and it's an infinite truth. We can't understand it. And this mystery is that kind of mystery as well. But the primary mystery here is that this is a secret, unknown, revealed. Paul uses this word 19 times. Six times in Ephesians. Already in chapter 1, he talks about the mystery of God's saving will, now made known to us in Christ. It was a secret how God would save the human race. And he made it known further, more fully, finally in Christ. In chapter 3, the mystery of Christ is particularly in reference to how the gospel entails the inclusion of the Gentiles with the Jews in the saving work of God. Two, becoming one, unity in the church. And note this this use of mystery is similar to Romans 11.25. Unity in the church. It is a mysterious plan, Paul says, hidden for ages and generations and now revealed. We are the lucky ones at the end of time. Our text today, 5.32 and then 6.19, he talks again about the mystery of the gospel. In Colossians 1, Paul speaks again of the mystery now revealed to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is that you are united to Christ. Christ is in you. My New Testament professor, who I've quoted a number of times in this series, Steve Ball, writes that Paul declares to us here that the original created institution of union of husband and wife was itself modeled on Christ's union with the church as his body, as its archetype. Archetype's a fancy word for this thing existed originally. And this is a copy of it. On the historical plane, marital union then becomes a type of the historical antel of the fulfillment in Christ. Prior to Christ's coming, to the disclosure in Christ, the reality on which marriage was predicated was a mystery. It was unknown. People just thought it was a thing people did to have babies and raise families. No. God created marriage because of, to point to, Christ and the church. Human marriage was modeled on Christ's union with his own body, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. The love of Adam and Eve, because she came from his own flesh, was inspired by Christ's love for the church, because she came from his own flesh, because he took on his human flesh. Remember what Paul said, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are made alive. How? Together with Christ. We are saved by being married to Christ. In his death and burial and baptism, in his resurrection. It's a marriage union that saves us. It's a marriage festival, supper that we're headed towards, and that we taste for, taste of. Marriage is a shadow cast back in time of the reality. And I always struggled in my head, this is the puzzle I had for the longest time. How can something that's based in creation, that's in creation, marriage, be based upon something that's about redemption? Hadn't even sinned yet, and it didn't exist yet. How could something in creation be based on something in redemption? And I've never really been able to figure this out. Notice what the Apostle Paul does here. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 is grounded in Ephesians chapter 1. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in glory, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Ephesians 5. That's Christ's love for the church. And what did Paul say in Ephesians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. The choice that we should be holy and blameless in Christ happened before the foundation of the world. It was a reality. The marriage was betrothed. <laughs> the promises were made. Jesus was coming to save us before Adam and Eve were created. And this is why and how human marriage established at the foundation of the world can be patterned on Christ's marriage to the church. Jesus was already engaged before we were made. Now, there's a lot of mystery in there. The other kind of mystery that you can't wrap your head around. God created us knowing we would sin, knowing he would save us from our sin. Yes, that's all mysterious. I don't have a short answer to that one. But that's how something in creation is modeled on something in the new creation. Because God knew that his creation would pass through the blood of the cross. To get to its consummate state. And this brings us to our third and final point. Christ's relation to his body. The church is our model for marriage. It's important that we understand. That the marriage command is law. Not gospel. What do you mean? You just said it was about Jesus. Yeah it's about Christ fulfilling the law. The law can be summarized as. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law of marriage is. Love this neighbor as yourself. Because she is yourself. That's what Paul says here. in Ephesians 5. That's law, brothers and sisters. It's the law amplified and intensified and magnified. This is why it is so difficult for sinners. Because it's law. Don't buy the sentimental lie about marriage. The serpent's lie is that marriage is about personal fulfillment. (laughs) Eve, you can be like God. It is about fulfillment. But fulfillment with your spouse. This is a neighbor you will wake up next to every day. This is a neighbor you will share meals with every day. This is a neighbor who will be interwoven into every aspect of your identity every day. You're going to share a bed and a bathroom with this person. You don't think you're going to come into conflict? Our brains meld together through marriage in a difficult, painful process. Uh, The science around neuroplasticity shows that elderly married couples, parts of their brains have atrophied because they just rely on their spouse to do those parts of business and vice versa. It's true. He's laughing. He knows. (laughs) They're both laughing. All right, you get them both to laugh. That's good. Marriage is law. This is hard to wrap your head around. This, by the way, is my marriage sermon. It's never really that popular, but you know, this is the bad news about marriage. But here's the good news about marriage. The gospel is that Jesus has done it. He's modeled and fulfilled it. The marriage imperative is grounded in the gospel indicative. Remember, we've been unfolding this the whole time. The indicative about who we are in Christ is what enables us to live the life of Christians in the new creation. When you are baptized into the body of Christ, you become one flesh with him. You become his bride. And he's making you perfect and spotless through his spirit. We all, male and female, submit to this head of our body, Jesus Christ. He is the savior of his body. That's what Paul says right here. Now, we don't know for certain... The relationship between Colossians and Ephesians. But if you look over at what Paul says in Colossians, they're very similar letters. They have a lot of overlap. Maybe Colossians was the rough draft and he expanded to Ephesians. Maybe he wrote Ephesians and then he didn't have enough paper, so he wrote a shorter, shorter version for Colossi. But in Colossians, we read the following. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. That's it. So different. imperative, 100% command, no Christ whatsoever. I prefer Ephesians. But the key moral of the story is always read them both. Always read everything the Bible has to say. 75% of the words that Paul has, instructions for husbands and wives, are about Christ. He's talking about Christ the whole time. Brothers and sisters, there may be some beautiful marriages in the world outside the church, among pagans, among idolaters among the followers of false religion, among Muslims and Hindus and Mormons, among the nuns. They can all have beautiful marriages because God's law is written on all their hearts. His law has been impressed upon their heart and God shines his common grace on believers and unbelievers alike. That's why rain and crops and good food can be found anywhere on planet earth. But marriage proved too difficult for the first couple, even when they were sinless, to successfully... Live out. The marriage ended in a great divorce. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from being married to the perfect bridegroom, the law of marriage will crush us all. You might stay married, but it'll be ugly. If not today, it will be ugly on judgment day. It is crushing more and more of us in our society today as faith in Christ falters in our age. And this loss of faith and the loss of marriage are creating a vicious downward cycle. The good news of marriage is the good news of Jesus Christ and none other. We have perfect union with him who became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. We have perfect union with him that is sealed by his Holy Spirit. Two have become one. And through him, we many members, those sinners, though diverse, are united. Jew and Gentile. People who were at war with each other. The conflicts of our age, Ukraine, Russia, Jew, Arab, The conflicts of our age, the racial conflicts, they're nothing to the gospel. Nothing. Unity can come from the most conflicted relationships in Christ. Our unity with one another in the church is a necessary fruit of the gospel. It is difficult, as difficult as marriage. And this is why Paul calls us to walk with humility, gentleness, patience. Much humility, gentleness, and patience are required to be a faithful member of Christ's church. Not only in our relations in the church, but with one another. And we'll see in the next two weeks in our homes, among husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters, relationships we all share. The foundation comes in Christ, who is the perfect husband, the perfect son, the perfect servant, and our perfect Lord. How fitting that the food we need for this journey, the sustenance we need for this pilgrimage, is provided in a mysterious feast. The food... That we need is his flesh and blood broken and poured forth for the forgiveness of our many, many sins. He's given us poor sinners just what we need. The body and blood of Jesus Christ, our bread from heaven. Let us close in prayer. Now let us prostrate ourselves before the majesty of our good God. With acknowledgement of our faults. Praying him to make us so feel them more and more that it may draw us to true repentance. And yet, nevertheless, we do not doubt that he bears with us in order that in our humility, we should ask his mercy and forgiveness, assuring ourselves that he will hear us if we keep the way he shows us by his word and reform us more and more according to his image so that we may give a true proof that as we call upon him as our father, so we covet nothing else but to be his true children. Amen.